if we haven't met or if you forgot over the course of the week, that is okay. Uh, we are in a series on uh, stewardship called All In. Stewardship, what is stewardship? It, it sounds very old English, doesn't it? It's like, I am the steward of this house, you know. It's like, oh, very good. What does that mean? A steward, as we learned from the, the sermon that Pastor Tony gave a few weeks ago, is somebody who manages the things or the affairs on behalf of somebody else, okay? So they may not be the owner of it, for example, a, a house, but they take care of it, right? They take care and manage for, on behalf of the house owner, okay? That is what a steward is. Now, we are called uh, to be stewards of all of God's things, okay? God had created us and has made us stewards over the entire earth, right? So God owns it, and we manage it, okay? That is a good thing to just put in mind when you think of a steward, God owns it, I manage it. God owns it, I manage it. Whether it's your body, for example, the Bible actually says, well, you're not your own, okay? So take care of your body because it was given to you by God. God owns it, but I manage it, right? Makes sense. I'm not going to manage somebody else's body. I'm in only this one, okay? I'm not one of those, you know, transhumans. So God owns uh, all things, your money, your possessions, your cars, your houses, your relationships, all of those things, and we are called to be good stewards of them. Last week, we looked at uh, the stewardship over the gospel. If you, are, if you call yourself a Christian, well, you must have heard the good news about Jesus, and you are actually commissioned. At the very end of Matthew, we took a look at the Great Commission, where Jesus says, hey, I have all authority over everything, now go, make disciples, I'll be with you, but go and make disciples. So we are called to be stewards over the gospel as well, to go out and actually share and open up your heart, open up your mouth, open up your testimony. In other words, open up your story of what Jesus has done in your life to those around you as a witness to them. That is what we are called as Christians to do, to actually manage the story of God. Uh, that's a high calling. This week, we are looking at something else that sort of dominates much of our time, and that is stewardship of work, stewardship of our work. Okay, all work is God's work, okay? All work is God's work. That's key to remember throughout the sermon. I may interchangeably use work and vocation, okay? Work and vocation. Here is why. Does all of the work that you do pay the bills? Nope, <laughs> right? When you clean your room, do you get paid? Probably not, right? Does anybody here have kids? Do, does raising kids, does the vocation of mother or father get you paid? No, <laughs> it does not. I will tell you. I don't think anybody else here has kids yet. Okay. Oh, no, a few do. Okay. Does it get you paid? No, right? It's no. <laughs> They're like, no. It actually, it goes the other way. I have to pay. Okay. Uh, does being a citizen and the vocation of a citizen in a city get you paid? No, not necessarily, right? You have to show up for jury duty. You have to pay taxes. Do you actually get paid to pay taxes? No, you don't. Sometimes you get money back, though. Okay, so you have many vocations, you wear many hats, and there is much to do. If you are a housewife or a house husband, okay, if you are caring for a house, do you get paid? No. Your payment is a clean house. Okay, so those things are still work. If you are a student, you still work. You ain't getting paid. In fact, you pay in the university, right? So how do we as Christians, uh, how do we view, how do we form opinions and, and a whole theology of what we do? How do we occupy our time and how do we work? What does the Bible have to say about that? Before we open up scripture, I'm going to start in Genesis. We're going to learn from the very beginning the purpose of work. Otherwise, we will fall into sort of the drudge of work. Let me give you a quick illustration before we begin. A man was walking along into a city and he finds three people 
putting bricks on top of each other. He walks up to the first bricklayer, and he says, excuse me, what, what are you doing? And the first bricklayer said, I'm laying bricks. <laughs> brick by brick, that's what I do, day in, day out. What does it look like, buddy? He walks on to the next person, and he says, excuse me, what, what are you doing? And the second person's perspective was slightly different. He said, well, we're building this wall. Oh, okay. A little bit bigger of an idea of what it is that you're doing. He's doing the exact same job, mind you. He's just putting bricks and putty and bricks and putty. But he sees a little bit bigger of a picture. There is a pathway. There is something that it's working towards. Great. And he walks to the third person, the third bricklayer, and he says, excuse me, what are you doing? And the third bricklayer says, I'm constructing a cathedral to glorify my God. Wow. Now, it's not to say that this man is so holy. It's that he has a bigger picture of what it is that he's doing. He's doing the exact same job as everyone else. It's bricks and putty. It's bricks and putty. But he has a grander picture of what the result is, of what is this is all about. He sees that, hey, this is going to be a cathedral one day. And it takes brick by brick, but it's going to glorify my God. Now, take that versus the guy that's just saying, I'm just collecting a paycheck, whatever, I do the same thing over and over. Now, you and I have different modes when it comes to work. Some of us are going to go into work tomorrow on Monday and be like, log in, do this, do that. But how do we get to that third bricklayer's mentality where we're able to see, like, no, actually, I'm building towards something bigger, okay? What does the Bible say about work? We're going to look uh, at Genesis, we're going to understand the, the purpose of work from the very beginning, what the purpose of work is. Then we're going to talk about the pain of work because we all feel something. We know that something's slightly off and not right. We will then talk about the propitiation of work that I had to find another P word, I'm sorry, and propitiation work. I'll tell you what that is in, when we get to it. And finally, how do we prize work, okay? I'm being very Southern Baptist and giving you four points with P's, all right? So I'm there you go. So the purpose of work, the, the pain of work, the propitiation of work, and the prize of work. Uh, let's bow our heads before we open up Genesis. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many works that you have accomplished. We thank you for all of creation. We thank you for calling us as your stewards, as your servants, to go into a world that needs to be healed, that needs to be touched by grace once again. I pray that you will call us as your citizens, as your saints, as your holy ones, as your priesthood, and remind us yet again why you have selected and chosen us and placed us where we are. I pray that we will be good stewards of the work that you give us. I pray that you will be the fuel and the motivation. We remind us that you own all things and all work is your work. And there is much to be done. I pray that you will illuminate the scriptures today. That it may feed us. That it may nourish us. That it may charge us. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Open up to Genesis chapter 2. A little context. Genesis 1. <laughs> we see in the very beginning of the story of God. Uh, in Genesis 1 we see the creation account. And this is the very first thing that we want to learn about God. We're going to build a little bit of our theology and then look at uh, at, at the, the purpose and then the pain, okay? Very first thing that we learn about God is that he is creator. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the very first worker, and we see him building this beautiful earth. We see him be build a beautiful atmosphere and, and universe. 
we see in, in the creation account in Genesis 1, we see a certain rhythm and we see structure, right? He didn't make fish, uh, he didn't make an ocean, or he didn't make fish and then an ocean. It was the other way around. It would be kind of weird, right? It'd be like, oh shoot, they're all dying, hmm. right? There was thought behind it. There was also creativity and beauty. There's complexity and simplicity in all of creation around us. And that was God's work. And to top it off, he creates mankind in the very end of Genesis 1, we see in 128, man is to subdue and rule over all of creation. So God creates, he, he goes to work saying and speaking all of reality itself and all of beauty itself into existence. And then he creates man in his own image and sets him there and says, I want you to rule over it. I want you to have dominion over this beautiful place. So in essence, God and man are teaming up right from the very beginning. We note just from that, just from the very beginning in Genesis 1, that God does not depend on anything else other than himself and his own creativity and his own structure and his own community. This is very different from other creation accounts of the time thousands of years ago. Yes, there were other creation accounts. But unlike any other one found, the Jewish account written by Moses called Genesis says that God created man after all of this to work with God in sustaining this creation. All other accounts say that man was created to serve this God relentlessly so that the God can feel satisfied. But our God is much different. He creates, says, I don't need anything else, but I choose to create man to enjoy the creation with me. Does that make sense? Now, Genesis chapter 2, this is the beginning. We're getting a little bit of a, like a zoom in, if you will. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are very similar. One is kind of like that big sweeping landscape shot that you see in Lord of the Rings, and then two is like, okay, now we're actually getting into a scene of like close-ups and all that, right? New Zealand's beautiful. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God had made the heavens. Yet no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So two things I'd like us to observe just from the get-go here in Genesis chapter 2. It seems a little counterintuitive point, but we do want to point out one thing about God in Genesis 1 is, yes, he creates, he's the first one to work, but he's also the first one to rest. I know it sounds strange and counterintuitive because we're talking about work and vocation and actually doing things. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is, hey, God designed us to rest. He made us in his image, and he himself actually sets a day apart to rest and enjoy the creation itself. Now, some of you do need to hear this because you have a crazy rhythm of life. You have absolutely no rest. It's work, work, work all the time, and you fit in rest where you can. But God himself is actually sets up a structure and rhythm of work and rest. There is a natural inclination in all of us to work, yes, but also we cannot negate that rhythm of rest. 
If you do not rest, you will work yourself down to the bone, and that is when you begin to, it just goes about as a drudge of life, when you are now the bricklayer just saying, yeah, yeah, more bricks, more bricks, more bricks. But it is important to realize that God himself rests, and that is the Sabbath, right? That is what that word Shabbat is, a rest. Jesus later affirms this in the New Testament where he says, hey, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't say, okay, shoot, well, I have this rest spot. I guess I'll plug man in there. No, it was made for our benefit. And when we do rest, we are able to step back and see parts of that cathedral coming together as we're laying these bricks. We realize that, hey, all work is actually God's work. But when we get too much into it, when we get sucked away into our studies or into our job or just taking one more phone call or just going a little more after hours, we get so lost. And that is because we are going against the natural order. If God himself rests, we need to also protect and set up a rhythm of work and rest that will be healthy. Second thing we learn about how man was made in verses 7 and 8. There are many things, of course, that could be drawn theologically from the first three chapters, four chapters of Genesis. But one thing that we want to highlight today as stewards of vocation and seeing that all work is God's work is verse 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Now, verse 8, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Where was Adam made? We don't know. It doesn't say. But we know that he was placed in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is significant because it shows us right away that God places exactly where he needs someone to be. I'm glad that it doesn't say, and he just formed him in Eden, and then, you know, he just went right to work. No, God places Adam exactly where he needs him. Okay? This is significant for us. Why? Because you may be wondering why you have the job that you have in the first place. You may be wondering why you came from the, from the family that you did. There are many people that I've talked to who say, oh, God, I wish I was adopted. I wish I, you know, like, I don't want to be around these people. Or, man, my job sucks. It stinks. Like, why am I here? It's important to realize that there is no coincidence that you are where you are. Okay? God has placed you there. If you find yourself Coming to Christ, if you find yourself a Christian, then know that you are there for a purpose, and that is to bless that area. God can easily bless it himself. He could do the whole magic ding, it's, but he doesn't. He chooses to place people there. You might say, no, but you don't understand my situation. It sucks. I'm pretty sure that it's bad. There's no way I'm going to get out of this. I should just quit or wait to get fired so I could collect unemployment. Tell that to Joseph back in Genesis 37 through 40. If you recall the story of Joseph, hey, he's a dreamer, he has visions. He tells his family, they hate on him, they sell him into slavery. You know, that old story again. I can only imagine what he must have been thinking when he was in slavery. And he was sold to take care of a household as a slave. But he worked, and he took care of things there in Potiphar's house, if you recall the story, and he became actually the head of all the servants of that house. And then he was accused of rape and then thrown into jail, you know, so that sucks. But while he was there, he gained favor with the guards, and he started to climb the ranks to the point where he was helping the guards there, and he continued his work as a good servant. And through that, he was able to listen to... Um, 
political prisoners and their jargon about the inner workings of Egypt. And when the chance came, God afforded him the opportunity to then oversee the nation, help oversee the nation of Egypt. So it builds and builds and builds. You may say, well, I just work at a, at a boba shop. I just work, I, I'm not in work. I'm just, I'm just at a sushi restaurant. I'm just at a bun place. Okay, you're all looking at each other. You know who I'm thinking about. And you may say, this is nothing. This is just to pay the bills for now. No, there's no coincidence why you were there. It is for God's glory, and it will build, so long as you are faithful in those things. Okay? Now, what is the actual task? Okay, what is the actual task? What is the job description of Adam here? Verse, uh, skip down to verse 15, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I'd love to be commanded to just eat. That, that is wonderful. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Kind of a big boundary there. But verse 15, he took the man to put him in the garden and to cultivate or to work it and keep it. Okay. Isn't that kind of the same thing? Well, yes and no. To work it means to cultivate it, to actually get your hands dirty and actually do the work and the labor. Now, it's not, this is not the sort of labor where it's like, oh man, this sucks so bad, but this is a sort of joyous labor where, uh, where Adam is able to work with God in the creation and take ownership of some of it, okay? I'll give you an example. If you were to approach my house, you will find potted plants, Okay. I love my potted plants. I have, I know it sounds so like a housekeeper, right? My potted plants. I love my potted plants. I picked, I hand-selected each plant. I said, this one is a good one, that one, I want this. I selected the soil, which is in the pot. I selected the shape of the pot. I love it. And I had to get my hands dirty by actually physically putting the plant in there. I didn't call somebody else and like, okay, whatever. It's just some random potted plant like what I see at Bellaterra. This is something that I did. And I had a certain pride in it. So when people come over and they're like, oh, nice plants, you have a good plant. I'm like, thanks. And I'm like, wow, I took, I took control of that. I was able to be a part of something, right? I know, you're like, wow, you really don't have a life, do you? <laughs> you potted plant. Don't look in my backyard. I have taken no control of my backyard. There are weeds everywhere. I almost showed you a picture, but I'm embarrassed, okay? No sense of ownership of the backyard at all. But the front is beautiful, okay? To work it, but it took work. But I know that I did it. It takes work to raise a kid. Man, it takes work to raise a kid. But you could look later on and see the progression and say, like, "Mm, you know what? I was a part of that. I was a part of that. If we took the bricklayers, the man who built the cathedral could look back and say, yep, there it is. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but I did it. There's a sense of ownership over it. And to keep it, to to work and to take care of it. What is to take care of it? That means to be very diligent, okay? to be on guard over things. Not just show up for work and be like, ah, oh, whatever, here it is again. Quick story uh, to embarrass myself further. I, uh, I work in the film uh, business occasionally when I have the time to commit to it. And uh, when we were on the set one day, that's like the job site basically in the film in Hollywood, oh, the set. And I'm sitting there, I, I, I show up with all of my equipment, I set it all up, I hit record, and I'm sitting there on my headphones, 
looking through Google images of, for some reason, of other sound people. And, and I'm like, oh, this guy, he looks just like me. He, he was wearing the same thing. He had the same headphones. He was sitting in the same slumped over position. And, and in my excitement, I turned to the camera woman. I'm like, hey, look at this. I look like him, right? Don't I look like him? And she, she's, of course, staring at her monitor. And I'm distracting her now. And she, and she looks over, and then she whispers. She goes, hmm, yeah, you do look similar, except that this man looks like he's much more attentive to what he's doing than you. And I'm oh, the shame. I'm like, oh, I guess I am Googling images of other people doing my job instead of actually doing my job. It's true, you can be at work without actually really mm, focusing on the job at hand. You could be there and say, well, well, more sushi, well, another sandwich, well, another patient, whatever. Yeah, this is easy, clack, 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 done. But do you actually take care of it? Do you actually take care of the work that is before you? Do you actually care about the people, the customers, the patients? Or is it just I show up and it's just another brick? Okay. What God commanded Adam when he put him in the soil, he's like, I want you to take care of this. Actually, you are going to work it because we're going to do this together. You're going to plant. You're going to flourish it. You're going to take care of it. And I'm with you. And God was with Adam. But we know that that didn't last long. That was the idea that man and God were working together side by side and man and man, okay, or man and woman, as Eve was also created. But we know that that didn't last long. Lasted a few more verses, and then we get to Genesis 3, which is the rebellion. Now, we know the purpose of work, right? It's to work alongside God. It's to fulfill God's work. All work is God's work. And he calls us to work alongside him, to rule over things, to take care of things, to work it. But unfortunately, mankind fell when they broke the one rule and said, actually, I think I can do it my way. I think I could do it a better way, God. We don't really need you. We can do it our way, and we could be like you. And in breaking God's heart, the first man and the first woman, our mother and father, had taken of the fruit, the one thing that God said, don't do it, you'll die. Now, there are, we are currently under a curse. If you look in verses thir uh, Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19, we get this curse and why you feel the way you do. We are now moving into the pain of work. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Well, that doesn't sound like very much fun to me. The work is now replaced by this other word, toil. Okay, this word toil is like that sort of back-breaking, like, unsatisfactory sort of work. That is the curse that all of you and I experience day after day. It's no longer really a joy, is it? The ground will produce thorns and thistles, okay? It's basically in vain that you work. If you've ever written a paper or done a job and you're like, what was that for? It was, absolutely, it was a waste of my time. That didn't do anything. 
I've done jobs where I haven't gotten paid. As a contractor, that's very scary. I go in, I put in two, three days of work away from my family, and I keep calling, and oh, they changed their number. That's a few thousand dollars. Where is it? It's nothing. Thorns and thistles. Now our work and our concept of work is completely twisted. Now when I say work, you're kind of like, yeah. You know, it's, it's something you got to do until the weekend comes. Yeah. We have a very twisted uh, view of work, especially in modern day, and here's some ways that these thorns and thistles can come out in the way that we view work and vocation. Some people take their title as their source of identity. This is something that I noticed actually in conversing in America versus abroad. When I go abroad uh, to my family in Europe, I've noticed that conversation flows much different. When I meet somebody new, it's not, typically it would be, hi, what is your name, and then what do you do, right? That is usually in America, like, well, so what do you do for a living? I don't have a job. Oops, now it's an awkward conversation. Overseas, that's not really the first thing on people's minds. I was ready to say, like, okay, what am I going to tell them? I'm an entrepreneur? I'm a pastor? What do I tell them? I don't know. It didn't come up <laughs> for, like, 40 minutes. I'm like, oh, okay. But I realized through the conversation overseas that, wow, I, I think we are just ready to have our name badge and our title and our profession right there, really close. That's what we cling to. And our work and our title can quickly become an idol. What happens when we do that, when we take pride in a position, let's say like a doctor or a lawyer, you know, it's all the things that our parents told us to be. Why? Because then you're the top of the food chain. Your work makes you. Everybody will look at you. You will have money. You will have security. You will have friends. Everybody, you have authority. Oh my gosh. If you achieve a good title. But what does that do to you? It gives you a certain pride in that identity. If you were to lose that job, you lose everything. And to top it off, you look at everybody else as either below you or above you in the food chain. You don't look at the trash truck driver and say, like, wow, you know, thank God that somebody's taking my trash. You're like, I guess you couldn't make it in school. Wow. That's what we do with work when we start saying, okay, this is my identity. I am a lawyer. I am a doctor. I am a student. I'm a pharmacist. I'm a teacher. I'm a... We begin to own that and say, this is what I am. This is what I have to be. It becomes our idol. Some people take great security in their work. And it becomes an idol in that way. I've known people who just say, I, I, I'm sorry, i got to be back at the shop. I can't be in the family function. I can't, I can't fulfill my duty in this way because, you know, i gotta, it's the shop. I got to make money. You know, it's, it's money. <laughs> constantly worried, constantly anxious. You constantly have anxiety of where things are going to come from next. That is part of the curse, that you work and work and work. I had read several articles of people who, uh, they were asked, they were older, older folks uh, within a few months of death, and they were asked, like, so what is something that you would change about your life? Like, looking back, what is one thing that you'd do different? And most people responded saying, I wish I didn't work so hard. Most people said, I wish I had more time with my family or my friends. It's the curse of sin and this endless toiling that we experience. Some people take the idea of work, not seeing it as God's work, and they just see it as it's an escape from reality. Some people I have talked to at the workplace after work, and I'm, I say, uh, hey, so what are you going to do now? You know, we're all wrapped up, we're all done, you, you go home. Oh, I don't want to go home, there's nothing for me there. Wow. 
Some of us just get so involved in our studies because we're like, okay, I'm hoping that this will be my savior because my family crazy, because my work, I hate my work, I'm just going to get involved in this. It's an escape from reality. Others negate their responsibilities at home or in their other vocations. I've seen generally men come home from a long day and say, you know what, I worked hard today, so you know, if you could take care of the kids and if you could clean the house and if you could do all this, I worked, I made money, because making money seems to be everything when it comes to work. Well, she's just a housewife. Excuse me? Just a that's, that's a lot more work than you think, sitting there on a computer. Some just hate work and are never satisfied. Okay, millennial generation, hello. How many jobs have you been through in the last year? I just, well, it's just, this isn't the way. I'm just not jiving. I didn't like the culture. Well, they didn't have a ping pong table. I don't know what it is, okay? But it's jumping around and just never satisfied. And sure, it may be the work culture, but really, it's this curse that is upon all of us. And maybe the millennial generation just feels it a little bit more. Where there's this lack of commitment because it's like, I just, this isn't, you don't view it as God's work. Finally, some could just care less about the actual job. You just do it to lay bricks. Just another bun me, right? Just another sandwich, just another boba, just another paper, just another patient, just another student. And you could really care less about it. You're just in it for the money. Hey, I know I was there. I've been there quite often in my second, not as a pastor, obviously, <laughs> but in my other jobs. Yeah, it's like I show up, I hit record, I get money. Cool. But we know that there's something wrong. We know that that's the brokenness. We know that's not, not what God had intended from the very beginning. But luckily, in Genesis 3, there is this promise. It's a beautiful promise that's given to Eve. In the midst of all of these cursing of the serpent, and the cursing of Adam, and the cursing of Eve. Yes, there's childbirth and all that. My wife reminds me of that one every time she's in labor. She's like, Eve, right? It's childbirth. But in the midst of that, there is this promise that is given. And it's God's rescue plan being initiated. He said, through your seed, I will send one. It is through your seed that I will send. And he will crush the head of the serpent and he will bite his heel. This is the divine promise from the very beginning that God says, I'm going to reverse this. We will conquer, you will, be, you will, I will conquer and crush this curse. It will be at a cost, a great cost, but I will crush it. Now this person is the propitiator of work. Propitiation means to cover something or to pay for something, a debt that is owed. It is covered. It is, you know, like when I cover the bill, like I'll cover it, no big deal. It's like that. Okay? Now, there is a curse, obviously, and there is this rebellion, there is this sin, this separation, but Jesus Christ is the great propitiator of sin. He covered through his death and resurrection sin and the curse. Jesus, we find, of course, in the New Testament, coming in and just ushering in God's kingdom and saying, look, I'm remaking all things. Okay, God is making things new. He can resurrect where there is once death, where there is once pain and toil. He is going to completely flip it around. His kingdom is now and is coming, and it was breaking through.
through many signs, through teachings, and finally through his death and resurrection. But Jesus didn't just come down and do one work like, all right, look, hey, everybody, okay, I'm done. He came to serve. Jesus himself worked. Jesus himself was a servant. Can we pull up Philippians chapter 2? Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he could have easily come down and said, I'm the king of kings, y'all need to bow down and serve me. No, that's other gods. From the very beginning, God was working. From the very beginning, God wanted to work with man. And here we see this picture in Jesus where he says he didn't consider equality with God, though he is, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a what? Servant. And being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus wiped his own disciples' feet. He got down and did the dirty work. He was with sick people healing. He was with well people teaching. The promise was carried all through the Old Testament that God is going to be with us once again. Jesus showed up and began to work and to began to say, follow after me. This is the new way. I am making all things new. In Adam, you were dead. If you follow that route, you're going to toil. You're going to find thistles, and we will experience that in life, but you follow me. It may lead you to a cross, but ultimately I will resurrect you, and you will see glory as well. If you recall, in Mark chapter 15, verse 17, Jesus himself, while being beaten and mocked, also took a certain crown from the Romans. Do you remember what the crown was made of? Thorns. To mock his authority, <laughs> you have a king, here's your crown, and it was a crown of thorns. I don't think that's a coincidence, that thorns and thistles. Jesus took upon himself the very curse that we deserve for our rebellion against God, saying, no, God, not all work is your work. I'm just going to do my own thing. But Jesus came and said, no, all work is God's work. And I will take that curse upon my own head. But he rose again, and that gives us great hope of a new humanity. Romans chapter 15, verses 17 uh, through 19 say, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. So we are now called righteous because of what Jesus has done. What is true of him is now true of you as a believer. That you no longer have to try to prove yourself. Your sense of worth does not need to come through your job and trying to prove things to your family. Like, look, I have a big degree now, mom. Look, everybody, I got this new job. Look, I got a Tesla. Look, I got this. Those are all great things and can be used for God's glory. However, your identity is not in that. Your true worth is not in that. Your true worth is in Christ. 
who spilled his blood for you, who rose again for you to say, now come on, get out of that grave, get out of that mire, stop toiling so bad and look up and see that I'm building something much bigger here. We are ushering in the kingdom today. We now have uh, new motivation and we see the ways that God provides. Now, how can we live in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, knowing that what is our true identity, a citizen of, of the kingdom of God, that we are adopted as sons and daughters, all of these things, what are some of the implications in how we do our work? How do we actually live this out? How do we view all work as God's work, as God's people? All right, prizing God's work, here we go. Matthew, I'm going I'm to pepper you with a bunch of scriptures, okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, this is uh, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, he sets it up and he is announcing to his people, the people that are following after him who hear him and say, hey, listen, you are salt in this world that is quickly losing flavor, that is dying, that is decaying, you are the salt and you are the light. Not you will be the light, not you should be the light, go on, you should be the light. No, you are the light of the world. And check out what he says, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine and that others may see your good deeds. In other words, that word deeds is also your good work. It's ergon in Greek. That's where we get ergonomic. It's kind of cool. Write that down. In the same way, let your light shine. Now, a lot of people think like, okay, in the workplace, here's, I'm, I'm going to be a good steward of the gospel. I'm just going to go around and tell everybody about Jesus and my friend Jesus, how great things Jesus. Jesus showed me all these things. I saw a God sighting. Oh, my gosh, that's so cool. That's cool, but that can also be counterproductive. Okay, you actually need to do your job and do it well and do it in a way that others are going to be able to say, you know what? I can't really say anything. I know that, yeah, they, they listen to Christian music or whatever, and occasionally we have talks about God, but they can't say that you're lazy. They can't say you do a bad job. If truly that light is within you, it should be coming out in your work because the way that you work shows people what you see. Are you going to be a bricklayer that just says, yeah, all right, Monday clocking in again? Or are you going to say, no, you know what? I know these are bricks, but I know that there's something much bigger that's being built through this. And God calls you, his people, to go into this world and be that light in those workplaces. Words are necessary, conversation will come up, but it's important to view it as more than just brick by brick, but imagine that each boba that you craft, each sandwich that you craft, each patient's case that you look at, you are, you are looking at it as if you were a doctor or a priest, and you're like assessing it and analyzing it, like, no, I want, I want this to be an enjoyment to somebody else. I want to be a blessing to my coworkers. I want to be a blessing to the customer or the patient or the student. I want, to be blessed. I want to be a blessing, and I want the way that I work to show who my God is. Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, Paul says this to slaves and to masters and workers and bosses, basically. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not as for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Okay? Some people say, well, I'll do a good job when the boss is around. I, I'm going to do a good job when, uh, you know, it looks good on the resume. No. 
Even when nobody's looking, you should be doing a great job at your work because you're not just doing it for human beings. You are doing it for God and his kingdom. You are the steward. You are viewing all work as God's work. And it doesn't matter if it's like changing a diaper. Okay, for those in the children's ministry, that is God's work as well. And that's hard work. But they're doing it as unto God. And they say, no, my Lord, he stooped down and did this for me. He did. Man, I want to be able to do good work for him as well. Masters, it goes on in verse 25, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you, will have, uh, that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, this gives us a workplace ethic for those of you who are in authority, who have people under you that you are maybe a manager of, you're a steward of. Okay? You know that, hey, I report to somebody much higher and he treats me well. I want to treat the people under me well as well. I want to be gracious. I don't want to show favoritism. I want to be right. I want to compensate them well. Some people are so stingy. Man, I give them like five bucks. No, treat them well. You already have an inheritance. Work as if you are a billionaire because guess what? In heaven, you are already taken care of eternally. There is nothing that this world can offer you, okay? 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Nevertheless, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, just just a quick summary, he's basically saying, look, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. And he's talking specifically about either married or unmarried and slave and free. But he says, in all ways, uh, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation they're called to. Why is that important for us to realize? Because again, God has placed you and given you the skills that you have for a reason, and that's for his kingdom and his glory. And he takes care of others through you, okay? Now God is using you once again to take care of the world and the creation around. Let me give you a quick example. This is a quote from Gene Edward Vyth. He's really big on the concept of vocation. Check out this quote. He said, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does. The way he gives us our daily bread is through the vocations of farmers and millers and bakers. We might add truck drivers, factory workers, bankers, warehouse attendants, and the lady at the checkout counter. Virtually every step of our whole economic system contributes to the piece of toast that you had for breakfast. And when you thanked God for that food that he provided, you were right to do so. Okay, God uses each one of us to flourish this world and to take care of this world in every single aspect. Okay, God cares about all of his creation and all systems that have been built. He cares about these things. Let me give you some examples for those of you uh, working in different fields. If you are in healthcare, for example, God cares about healing. He is a God of life. And he is using you to promote the healing and the flourishing of humanity in that way. In agriculture, okay, I don't think anybody here is in agriculture, right? No? Okay, well, hey, God cares about the provision of mankind. He cares about that and how it's sourced in the sciences. For those of you who are involved in sciences, God's creation and the discovery of all of his creation and how it can, and how it can be harnessed and used and resourced, God cares about those things. If you are in engineering, he cares about structure and resourcing things well, how to extract things. If you are in government, God's care for justice and for the protection of citizens. You are contributing towards that. All work is God's work. 
If you're in education, God cares about learning and teaching the next generation to carry on legacies. God is using you in that field. If you're in arts and entertainment, God cares for beauty and symbolism and meaning. So you do your job well to usher in that beauty. And if you're in home care, if you are at home taking care of family members, if you are taking care of, of uh, children, okay, God cares about the individual home. And it is up to you, and he is using you to teach about him, to teach the next generation, and to usher in his goodness. All of this, all of this is heading in a direction as well. Okay? God takes care of his things. All work is God's work, no matter what it is that you find yourself doing. But I, I want to leave you with just these last two scriptures to see where God is taking us. In Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, it says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Think about that picture for a minute, that God is purifying us, okay, that he is getting rid of all of these thorns and thistles, but that he is doing this so that we can be his people, okay, who are, are eager to continue on these good works. He is solidifying his nation, his people that he had from the very beginning. And in Revelation 21, we see a picture of the end of pretty much all things, okay? It's the end of, of all things that we know, but the start of something new. And we don't have much more beyond uh, Re Revelation, right? It says, verse 1 of Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and, they, he, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will, no, uh, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the very end, Jesus will see his kingdom fully established, and we will be able to see all things made new, working alongside of God and one another. That is the portrait. That's how the Bible ends. Okay, it ends with sort of a, an open ending of like, well... This has yet to come true, but it will, okay? Jesus is making all things new and invites us to be part of it. We will still walk with him yet again. Okay, we're not just gonna be sitting up there playing harps, okay? Actually, it's gonna come down to us and we'll be together, okay? All work is God's work. God uses your work currently, whatever it is that you find yourself doing, Know that he is using it to flourish the areas that he cares about. Again, whether it's medically, whether it's in your household, whether it's in business, whether it's in sciences, whether it's in entertainment and arts. We could choose to see the bigger picture of the kingdom that Christ is building through you instead of just being a bricklayer. Okay, let's pray.